Hi, this is Steve Nerlich. And this is Steve's PhD, Episode 3, Reality Intrudes. Pretty much anywhere you live, people will go on about the economy, what's wrong with it, and how to fix it. There's even a Nobel Prize for economics, although it was introduced in 1969, long after the dynamite-inventing Alfred Nobel had passed on. The prizes he originally introduced were in physics, chemistry, physiology slash medicine, literature and peace. But if he had still been around in 1969, maybe he would have agreed that, oh yeah, economics, of course. Well, maybe. Anyhow, when you start talking economics, one word that gets used a lot is productivity which is all about people keeping busy doing stuff that creates wealth, creates jobs, and creates things for export. Productivity depends on another word that gets used a lot, infrastructure. Infrastructure is what enables everyone to keep doing all that stuff that generates the wealth, the jobs, and the exports, and that also allows them to be productive across the generations. The old saying that it takes a village to raise a child is all about infrastructure. Now, before we go too much further, I should paint myself into this picture as well. A bright-eyed young PhD student. Well, okay, not exactly young, or necessarily bright, but enthusiastic and keen to change the world with some newfangled notions about how to enhance science education in Australia. So I'm looking at this economic interpretation of how the world works, and I'm going, hmm. So to continue the story, in the 21st century, we like to say that you live in an economy rather than a village. But infrastructure is still infrastructure, and it will need to be robust if your economy is to prosper. And if your economy is prosperous, as well as being able to raise children, you can sell lots of stuff to people outside of your economy, which means that people inside your economy have lots of money to buy stuff locally, which means other people in your economy also prosper by selling services to the people who are bringing in the money. But it's a bit like the second law of thermodynamics. All this can't last forever. After all, everyone else is watching what your economy is doing, and it doesn't take them long to figure out that a lot of your economic prosperity is based on selling widgets. So they start making widgets too, and because they are not a prosperous economy, their people feel good if they get paid maybe half of what your people get paid, so their economy starts selling widgets for half the price that your economy has been selling them for. So, suddenly your economy can't sell widgets anymore. This is where another key factor to economic prosperity kicks in. Innovation. I mean widgets. They're so last century. It so happens that there's an idea out of left field that the university has been mucking about with, and which industry has taken an interest, and one day, some guy in a black mock turtleneck shirt 
gives a public demonstration of Gadget 2.0 and next day the gadget stores have people queuing for miles to buy one and your now gadget-based economy continues to prosper. So, all this thinking is the general context of my PhD. Seeing innovation activity, that is science, technology, engineering and mathematics, as being central to economic prosperity, and hence central to the health and well-being of humanity, both now and in the future. Nothing too ambitious, you understand. Anyway, getting back to the story again. Remember that word, infrastructure. If you do want to make the world a better place, it makes sense to invest in educational infrastructure. That is, universities and also vocational training centres and schools. This then allows both you and your children to become innovative in an ongoing fashion across the generations. Because remember, there's all those economies watching and working towards undercutting your prices, so you really do have to keep on innovating. So, science, technology, engineering and mathematics education is the magic bullet to save all of mankind, and I feel a warm inner glow at becoming one of its champions. And then I see a lead story in the newspaper that talks about a new report that shows science graduates can't get jobs. What? And a bunch of experts are cited shaking their heads at this current trendy push to get more Australian students studying science. What? They say it's a wasted effort. There aren't enough science jobs in Australia as it is. What? This is the cold light of day suddenly intruding on my cosy little research world. Indeed, this is the cold light of day pulling the carpet out from under my feet. What the hell ever got me thinking there was a problem here in need of a solution? And it's about then that I realised this is the lead story in the weekly higher education supplement of The Australian, our national newspaper. And of course, guess what paper everyone reads in Canberra? And guess what higher education supplement everyone reads at the Australian National University? Dear God, my supervisor's already read the story by now, and I can already hear the sound of my thesis proposal being torn to bits. But then this little voice in my head says, Hey, Brainiac, you're a research student. Oh yeah. So I went on the net to find this report. Read the introduction... No, not a word on science degrees being a waste of time. Nor is there anything in the conclusion, nor in the whole darn report. Actually, this quite well-written publication just lays out a bunch of survey findings suggesting graduates across different fields of study all have interestingly diverse lives after they graduate. Eventually, I do find this inconspicuous table that shows that 57% of graduates from the natural and physical science field were working in jobs that didn't directly relate to their science qualification. In comparison, graduates who did economics were about 80% likely to be in an economics-related job, engineering fares better at around 85%, and if you did health or education, it's up to around 90%. 
So, this is the hole that I have dug myself into. Here I am, well into my first year of the PhD, which is all about developing a detailed background knowledge of your field so that you can contribute something new. And already it's becoming clear that just pushing for more science graduates may not be the answer. It's fair to say the newspaper went all anti-science to make a story, but it is also true that we science advocates want to go around being white knights, defending the earth from ignorance, but of course reality is never so straightforward. And I agree it's not okay to be telling young people that their country needs them if they plough through years of study and then find that their country doesn't actually have a job for them. Someone needs to be telling potential students what these job vacancies that tub-thumping science education advocates keep saying need to be filled. What are these jobs? How much do they pay? Do you get to travel and work overseas? And once you understand all that, how can you better align science courses to produce graduates who can do these jobs? And what does happen to those science graduates who don't get a science job? Did they even want a science job? And either way, what sort of jobs do they end up in? You know, someone should do a PhD thesis on all this. And should we be worried that there really aren't enough science jobs in Australia? Well, of course, I've got to keep some suspense here so you'll keep listening. But here's one point. Remember how being a good student, I went back to the source rather than just believing the newspaper article. That survey that showed that only 57% of science graduates were working in a science job, when they did that same survey three years earlier, the figure was just 50%. So it's grown. It's grown a lot. There's been a very consistent science graduate output over that time period, and now more of them are in science jobs. So there is always hope. And no, my supervisor didn't tear up my thesis proposal. More on that next episode. Steve Nerlich, PhD candidate.